0: Good afternoon, it's 1 o'clock. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Sunny skies, zero degrees, minus four with the wind chill. A man accused of killing 10 people in a van attack in North Toronto is set to stand trial in February 2020. The date was set at a brief hearing for Alec Manassian, who faces 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder in connection with the incident on April 23rd. Police alleged the 26-year-old drove a rental van down a busy sidewalk along Yonge Street, mowing down pedestrians along the way. Last month, the deputy attorney general granted a prosecution request to skip the preliminary hearing in the case and head straight to trial. Ontario's community safety minister says the qualification requirements for the province's top policing job were changed partway through the hiring process to broaden the pool of applicants for the post. Sylvia Jones says a hiring firm made that decision before the appointment of Ronald Taverner as the next commissioner of the OPP and says he's well qualified for the job. Critics of his appointment have noted the superintendent with the Toronto Police Force is a personal friend of Premier Doug Ford. NDP leader Andrew Horvath says it's shocking that the hiring process was changed and called for an independent investigation into his appointment. Police in Elgin County are responding to a vehicle in the water in Port Bruce. Officers have released very few details, but say they're on scene with other emergency crews. It's unknown if anyone was injured when the incident took place or what led to it. We'll bring you the latest on this as it becomes available. It was a busy morning for protesters out at London's Canada Post processing facility. The group Londoners for door-to-door was out in force, protesting the federal government's decision to levy back-to-work legislation last week, forcing postal workers back to work after five weeks of rotating strikes. Group spokesperson, a Wendy Goldsmith, tells 980 CFPL Canada Post workers have been denied their right to negotiate a fair contract.
1: We're upset that the Liberal government has uh, legislated workers back-to-work without a contract and, um, we're standing up for it. workers everywhere.
0: Goldsmith says they got a warm reception from workers when they were on the line this morning. She says they're looking at their options for possible future demonstrations. France is trying to forestall more violence, of more violent protests by postponing controversial tax increases which were set to take effect in January.
2: French Prime Minister Edouard Philippe has announced the suspension of the planned fuel tax hikes for a six-month period in order to, quote, appease the country. He said no taxes should put in danger the unity of the nation. The key question is whether this will be enough to satisfy the citizens who've taken to the streets. Some are saying it's a good first step, but many online are noting it's just a six-month delay, warning it's too little, too late, because the crisis has become about much more than just fuel taxes. Ian Pannell, ABC
0: News, Paris. You're listening to 980 CFPL.
2: Who doesn't love unexpected sunshine? We'll need some sunshine as we get to our first topic of the day on London Live. We're going to be talking about wait times. So it's good to do this on a sunny day because wait times for healthcare care not going down. Now, there are a couple of things that you have to outline. If you are really sick, if there is something life-threatening, boom, you are in. And there isn't an issue that way. But if something can turn chronic, that's where our healthcare system seems to have a little bit of extra space. And those sorts of things are happening. So we'll deal with that in just a few minutes because the Fraser Institute has put out a new survey. And they do this pretty regularly, actually. We'll have to ask them why they do it so regularly. But they have put out a new survey and it... Calculates wait times across the country, it calculates wait times for individual provinces, so we'll take a look at how things shape up. Remember, London Health Sciences Centre has been addressing this for a while as well, and we'll show you where you can go and how their wait times are doing in certain areas, the ones that they make public. So that is happening on the show almost right off the bat. We have to talk about the search for the Ark of the Covenant at some point today. That's back in the news. Jeff McCown from Hockey Canada is going to join us because I want to add some more fire to an announcement that was really big, but I don't think it's spread around enough. Hockey Canada had their gala and golf event In the summer. You remember it? And they honor, at this event every year, all of the championship teams. So they were able to honor Canada's World Junior team from last year. And it was a spectacular success. It was held at the London Convention Center. I couldn't believe some of the bids on the auction items. Because they had some pretty tremendous auction items. Think about this. You get to fly in a private jet... And go to the Masters and hang out there for a couple of days. And I think, did that not go for $35,000? One auction item. I remember somebody in the crowd turning to somebody else and saying, that's more than I make in a year. And that person just spent it on a couple of days of watching other people play golf. And that's the way it worked out. It was a fantastic success in terms of raising money. And some of that money is staying behind in London, Ontario. You may have heard the total by now, 400000 So we will talk about where that is going to go, how the London event compared. Because if we're going to take a run at hosting the World Junior Hockey Championship, and nobody has said that we're not going to take another run. There have been some attempts, but this thing got too big too fast. If we had maybe been able to do it in the early 90s, that's when you were seeing cities the size of London and even smaller than London able to host that event. But I don't think we're done. I get a feeling that maybe there's another run in there somewhere at a World Junior because they've gone through all the VETCOM cities. They're back out in Vancouver this year. They have done Edmonton and Calgary. They've even done VetCom. They've gone to Winnipeg. They've gone to Halifax, Toronto, Montreal. Ottawa. Can I name any more big cities in Canada? Those are the only ones that I know. I'm out. But there has to be an opportunity for London to be a part of a host bid. And so everything that we have done recently that Hockey Canada has come in to see, they've been really impressed. Seriously, they have. We hosted a World Junior exhibition game and 9,000 people stayed right to the end of a 9 nothing game that meant zero. This was not deciding a winner. This was just, hey, we're going to show you what London is all about. And the players were blown away. Hockey Canada was impressed. And then we did a very good job with the gala and golf event. So congratulations if you were part of that in any way. So that's what we'll talk about a little later on. And in about an hour from now, we are going to speak because the Junos are coming to London. In March, we will speak with Juno award-winning jazz artist Michael Casehammer. He's got a great story. We kind of have taken him over as a Canadian. But he was born in Germany and may not have even had a musical career had his family not moved to Canada. Wait a minute. How does that happen? Wouldn't you think you'd be very successful in Germany as a classically trained musician? Well, he found a whole lot of success Coming to Canada with his family, which he did at a pretty young age, but he's somebody that is dealing with music that you don't necessarily see people gravitating to unless they're introduced to it. Unless you know, this is this is jazz is not popular music, but if you listen to what he does, and we will, it's different and it's great, and so we'll hear from Michael Casehammer, and then we're actually going to look at something that York Regional Police. Have been up to. They have over the weekend. If you go to globalnews.ca. You can find a story. And that story deals with. York Regional Police. Naming 16 people. Who got picked up for drunk driving. Charged with drunk driving. Naming the people. So this is not convicted. But they are putting the names out there. as, As a way to shame. As a deterrent. Is this going to work? Devin Peacock. Tomorrow, on the Craig Needle Show, Devin will be in between 9 and noon. We'll be talking with Mad, but I want to set the stage for the story. And then Devin will continue it tomorrow morning on 980 CFPL. So we'll do that a little later on as well. Lots to come in between. Thank you so much for being here. You know something we have to beware? And let me know if you're participating in one of these and how you actually make it work. It's gift exchange season. Do you not find... People will get together, and if you're a part of this or you're involved with this, hey, we should have a gift exchange. We'll draw names. We'll put a cap of $25 on it. Does anyone actually enjoy those things? Hey, a small flashlight and some bath beads. Thanks. I really appreciate this. Hey, look, it's a a keychain and some bath beads. Thanks. I really appreciate this. Does anybody participate in those and actually enjoy it? Should we not outlaw them? Or am I just being all grinchy? Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. Let me know the rules of your gift exchange or whether you have found a way to keep from participating in one or whether I'm completely wrong. got to have gift exchanges. Tis the season. In a moment, we'll talk about the waiting season. For some people, it feels like a season. Fraser Institute put forth wait-time results from a recent survey That will tell us how we're doing in Canada and how we're doing in Ontario. And then we'll take a look at how we're doing in London as well. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Tammy says, I'm being a Grinch. Because her email at Mike at 980cfpl.ca says, you're being a Grinch. That's how I know. Gift exchanges provide a little bit of sunshine around the workplace. Good for morale. You should have one. I don't know if I could organize it. Tammy doesn't give the rules for her gift exchange. 25 bucks? Is that what it is? Bath beads? I don't know what else you could get. Small shaving creams? You go into, like, the travel section? You get things like that? Those would add up in a hurry. You know what isn't in a hurry right now? Getting certain forms of medical care in this country we have some pretty significant wait times now we do have to lay this out if you are sick and we do have a fantastic medical community in london ontario we're pretty lucky in fact we're not even pretty lucky we're really lucky but if you are not somebody who is in dire need of care sometimes wait times can be lengthy and if you look at the statistics they back it up and that's exactly what we are able to do right now because our next guest on London Live our first guest of the day is Bacchus Barua who is the associate director of health policy studies at the Fraser Institute and the co-author of a new report from the Fraser Institute just out this morning on wait times. Bacchus how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Well, uh, intrigued, because this survey has certainly created some conversation. This is something that you do from time to time at the Fraser Institute. When you look at, at when you do this or, or why you do it on a fairly regular basis, uh, why is that? You know, I I, I think it's
3: very, very important for us to consistently measure the performance of our healthcare system. And at the Fraser Institute, we do that in a variety of ways. Um, we have uh, papers that are looking at the cost of the system, the the number of doctors we have, the number of MRI machines that we have. Uh, and of course, it's vitally important for us to also measure the wait times that, that are there in Canada uh, rather than simply rely on anecdotes which can be both positive and negative. Um, and so in order to just get a general measure of uh, how our wait times doing across provinces, are we increasing or decreasing, uh, we start measuring wait times in the early 1990s which means we've been doing this for over 20 years now Uh, and unfortunately what we're seeing is that wait times have gone up from about 9.3 in 1993 um, in terms of weeks to about 19.8 weeks this year across Canada. Uh, A little bit of an improvement from last year's 21.2 weeks which was a record high uh, but we're still finding that Canadians are waiting on average about five months for medically necessary care.
2: Now, if we break down what they are waiting for, is this to see a specialist? Is it for a treatment? How does that fall?
3: Well, we look at wait times in two different segments. The first segment is between getting a referral from your family doctor to actually seeing a specialist, Uh, and over there the uh, wait time across Canada is 8.7 weeks. Uh, And then the next wait is from uh, your your consultation with your specialist to actually getting treatment, and over there the wait time is about 11 weeks. Uh, What's really really interesting about that second segment, uh, where the wait time is 11 weeks, is that that wait time is actually three weeks longer than what physicians consider to be clinically reasonable, which is about 7.7 weeks so not only are Canadians waiting long in terms of uh, just absolute numbers uh, but they're also waiting longer than what their physicians consider to be clinically reasonable.
2: We're talking with Bacchus Brewer who is the Associate Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute and we are looking at wait times for health care in Canada the 2018 survey that has come out so that is nationally. Bacchus can we break this down and take a look at how Ontario is doing? Absolutely. You know,
3: in general, Ontario was always um, a a good performer compared to other provinces in Canada leading the country. Um, For example, last year, uh, its wait time was 15.4 weeks compared to the national median of 21.2. This year, again, although Ontario's wait time is lower than the national average, uh, it's actually seen a little bit of an increase. It's gone up from 15.4 weeks to 15.7 weeks, Um, and it's actually lost the top spot. It's no longer the the province with the shortest wait time that now goes to Saskatchewan, uh, which has got a wait time of 15.4 weeks, uh, which has really shown a remarkable turnaround in that province because it actually had the longest wait time circa around 2008 to 2009. Um, But what's important to remember in in Ontario is that even though it's a very short increase in wait times um, between the two years, if we again look at 1993, the wait time in Ontario was only 9.1 weeks. Uh, So it's really important for us to have this long historical context um, so that we see how these very small yearly increases stack up.
2: Now, Bacchus, if one of us has a sore thumb, that's one thing if we had to wait a while to have our sore thumb addressed. If we had a concern for something that was life-threatening, all of a sudden, that becomes very different. If we break down what sorts of things Ontarians are waiting for, how does that look? Well, what we do in the study is, is we're not looking at emergency wait times um,
3: because they're very, very difficult to measure and, and Canada's system is fairly good at, at helping you when, when you have an absolute crisis that you're going to die from. Uh, the problem is what happens to everybody else who who has something in between, let's say a sore thumb and, 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 um, and, and an absolute crisis. Uh, and that's what we're looking at over here. So we look at wait times for things like general surgery, otolaryngology, um, uh, internal medicine, but also things like radiation, medical oncology. Uh, in Ontario, you see you a vast... Um, Uh, Spread in terms of the wait times. For example, you'll have uh, a shorter wait time for things like medical and radiation oncology, which is about 3.2 to 3.5 weeks. Uh, But then when we look at something like orthopedic surgery, Ontarians can be waiting 29.7 weeks, which is almost 30 weeks on average uh, for treatment. They also face considerably long waits for uh, things like neurosurgery, uh, where the average wait is 21.1 weeks, uh, and things like uh, ophthalmology, um, which is treatment of your eyes, um, where the wait time is, again, 28.9 weeks. So um, there, there is a big spread in terms of uh, the wait times for different procedures. But overall, we find that at 15.7 weeks, uh, Ontarians in general are waiting very long for treatment.
2: We're talking about wait times for health care in Canada and in Ontario specifically. Bacchus Brewer is joining us, the Associate Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute, co-author of a new report that was released very early this morning on wait times. Bacchus, we always like to look at the why end of things. That Why does this happen? Could we just not add more healthcare professionals into the system in those disciplines and alleviate this completely? Well unfortunately
3: I think for a long time policymakers and politicians have tried to tackle it that way by simply pumping more money into the system uh, but that doesn't work. Canada in general is a very high spender compared to other countries with the universal healthcare and yet we have fewer doctors and yet we have fewer beds uh, and certainly we have some of the longest wait times. The simple answer about why nothing has changed and why wait times in general are getting worse um, even even if we see a small improvement this year is that we haven't actually seen any significant shift in policy. Uh, we have haven't seen anything that actually brings us closer to countries that do better in terms of wait times. Um, these are countries like Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands, France, uh, Sweden, Australia. They all have universal health care. They all spend about the same as we do, but they have much shorter wait times because they do universal health care differently. They embrace the private sector. They have user fees and co-payments for, for patients, of course, with uh, with limits, so that's never a financial burden. They fund their hospitals based on, on activity to incentivize treatment. Um, and these are all things that are generally missing from Canada healthcare system. So while we might see some improvements in the margin, um, if, if, if politicians continue to to throw money at the problem, we will not see any large alleviation um, of our defining characteristic, um, which is wait times in our healthcare system.
2: So we, do we need an overhaul? Do we need to just take a couple of tips from places like France and Germany and Australia and the Netherlands? Easy fix, difficult fix, where would you place it? Well, I
3: think what we need to do is we need to understand that what we're doing right now doesn't work. We've, we've tried this for a very long time. We have over 20 years of data that's showing us that wait times have increased, all while spending has increased. Um, if if we do want to alleviate wait times, we need to recognize that other countries embrace the private sector that helps them expand capacity or offer a pressure valve. Uh, we need to recognize that uh, co-payments and user fees are a common feature of other countries with universal healthcare systems, many of which uh, actually have shorter wait times. And we need to we need to understand that we need to incentivize our hospitals uh, to treat patients by having activity-based funding where money follows the patient. Um, of course, it's no simple fix. It's not something where uh, just one of these policies will, will fix our, our wait time situation, but it's likely some combination of these three things. Um, but one thing's for sure, if we continue doing what we're doing right now and simply hoping that more money will fix the problem, um, I think we're just uh, going to have longer wait times the next year wouldn't we measure this again
2: Hmm. well for anyone who's just joining us as you just hinted at wait times have increased nationally even in Ontario we're up a little bit Saskatchewan has come down a little bit and is looking very good overall though these are wait times that deal with what this is not uh uh-oh you have something that could be life-threatening uh you'll have to wait 19 weeks that's not what we're talking about Yeah, I I should
3: mention that nationally the wait times have come down very, very slightly. They've come down from 21.2 weeks, which was the highest we'd ever seen on record, to 19.8 weeks. Uh, So I suppose it's a little bit of a good news story for Canada. Uh, But overall, in general, uh, patients are still waiting over 20 weeks in many provinces. In Ontario, uh, 15.7 weeks, which is uh, an actual deterioration of the wait time. Uh, We're measuring wait times across 12 different specialties. We're measuring things like general surgery, ophthalmology, neurosurgery, uh, urology radiation and medical oncology um, and again we see a huge huge spread in terms of wait times we see uh, patients waiting shorter for treatments like radi- radiation medical oncology which is three to four weeks um, but much much longer wait times so for things like orthopedic surgery which can be almost 30 weeks in Ontario so across the board in general very long wait times uh, in Ontario even though it's it's doing better than most of the provinces um, but very very long wait times in Canada more generally.
2: All right. Well, Bacchus, we really appreciate the work you've done on this and the work you continue to do to update us on how wait times are doing. Enjoy the rest of your day. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Bacchus Barua, Associate Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute, co-author of their latest report on wait times. So nationally, we've come down a little bit. Ontario has been pretty good, but... Not as good as Saskatchewan all of a sudden. Maybe that's more thanks to Saskatchewan. All in all, though, you do wait. If you want to see a specialist, if it's something that does not appear to be of an emergency nature, you're going to wait. And as Bacchus points out, they take that data, they compare it to what's going on in places like France and Australia and Switzerland and Germany, and they say our system is broken. This is not throwing money at it doesn't work, saying, OK, well, let's just bring in more doctors, more health care providers. It's not working. But overhauling it, that's where we've been for a long, long time. You know, there was a, a discussion years and years ago that we would implement implement more of what Great Britain was doing. And yet, it hasn't happened. The idea of adding in more private health care. Maybe that comes slowly. There is some, but maybe it's it's taking a while. Maybe it's it's not being promoted by the government, so... It doesn't work out as well as it could. I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. But when you look at the figures, we need somebody to develop a solution and get going on this. If you want to talk about London Health Sciences Centre, they do actually publish wait times. Now, a lot of them are different than what we were just talking about with Bacchus Barua. Because they deal with more emergency wait times and they break things down for Victoria Hospital, University Hospital, Children's Hospital. If you go to their website, you can actually access these very easily. Google LHSC wait times, they'll pop up and they're updated every couple of months. And they don't look too, too bad. I mean, again, we're talking about emergency department wait times that if you look at the number of hours if somebody rushes in there and is treated and released, we're looking at under three at the Children's Hospital, under four at university. So you know, it, it depends what you're there for. Because remember, if you are bleeding, if you are having a heart attack, you're going to get in. If you have broken a toe... You're probably going to be down the list while all of the other people who are coming in bleeding and having a heart attack, they're going to get moved. So wait times are difficult. The important thing is they are being addressed. And if you look at what London Health Sciences Centre has done, it's almost like a hotel now. They've got, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but they've got an 11 o'clock checkout time for patients being discharged. And that hopefully helps to free up beds, and that shortens wait times. They're doing their best to have better communication tools with patients, to work with community partners, and make use of other services. So they've addressed this. They're looking at this. But it is the nature of our system. It is essentially a free system, and we're able to take advantage of it whenever we need it. For any little thing. And I think that factors into it a lot as well. We'll talk wait times in just a moment. If you're on hold and you have any wait time stories, please give us a call, 519 643 2222. You can email Mike at 980CFPL.ca. We'll take a break for Jacqueline the Bell and news, and then we'll get to your experiences on London Live on Global News Radio, 980CFPL. We have the best listeners. The things I'm learning right now about gift exchange is amazing. There's a drawnames.com website. Can we make things easier? I'm sorry, this is not easy enough. Could I please have a website that helps me to draw names out of a hat? I want to check out that website. I haven't yet. Thanks to Rob for sending that along. But we'll talk more about that in just a moment. I want to get your thoughts on wait times. And I do have... We're not able to talk with somebody from LHSC right now. They've sent along the statements uh, from... The Vice President of Patient-Centered Care. I'll read it quickly. Timely access to care across all of our programs and services, including the specialist areas. The Waiting Your Turn survey is considered. Continues to be a priority for LHSC. And we look forward to continuing our work with community partners and fostering a more integrated system of care. And it kind of goes on from there. So, in other words, yeah, they, they know. And they're doing their best. It is the system that they're up against as well. What has your experience been like 519-643-2222 if you missed it during the first half hour of london live we were talking about uh, the latest survey on wait times done by the fraser institute ontario not that bad but at the same time we're looking at across the country about 19 weeks to wait for things now this is not if you are gravely ill this is not if you have an emergency that needs to be dealt with in that case you're able to get in. You're able to get seen. But this is for things that, let's say, are not chronic, but could turn chronic. So, what's your experience been like? 519 That's five one nine six four three twenty two twenty two. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. We'll start with John. John, what's your experience hey, been like? Hey, how are you? Not bad.
4: You know what? Incredible experience. I'll, the, the last two major things in the last I ten not even 10 years, 8 years uh, 211, broken ankle, compound fracture bone sticking out of the ankle by ambulance to the hospital University was plugged with 2 or 3 car accidents so I ended up getting down to St. Thomas Hospital right in there, right away got everything stabilized had me on morphine because I was in so much pain blah 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 turned out that they couldn't operate which they had to because of uh... they called it fracture swelling and it sounds crazy but because the bone had sort of come out the ankle through the skin it sort of had to heal itself before they could go in for surgery which they had to wait twenty two days uh... when they felt it was ready they could go in so i wouldn't get what was called staph infection so it plated and pinned all that they were incredible uh, How's your years. ankle
2: today? I think we all want to know. Are you you're able to run around on it? Well,
4: I can't run around on it. I'm a 60-year-old guy that's got plates and pins in an ankle. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's uh, the old thing. I can feel it. I, I know now when you used to hear when I was younger and hear old people go, ah, I can tell a change in the weather because of the pins in my ankle or leg or whatever. I can now.
2: That's you. So uh, that.
4: So you know what? But you know, uh, I'll, I'll go on. I had a, a scare there two years ago, just from a regular checkup, uh, with regards to prostate. Boom! My doctor had me into doctor Ferguson in Strathroy within ten days, who's like the guru around this area on uh, prostate cancer. Uh, it turned out it was nothing—a little enlarged prostate, but you start getting that when you're older. But boom! My family doctor got me into him in ten days. Within you know a couple weeks, I'm in St. Joe's. No one wants to have this done unless you need to, but biopsy on your prostate. So, but that turned out all negative. So that was great. Two years ago. My mother, well, within the last five years, she's passed on now, but not a result of this. But there were two times they, ha- they found uh, a lump in her breast. Within a week and a half, she's at uh, both times uh, in for uh, what they call a lumpectomy, and that was done fast. Now, a couple weeks ago, I put a screwdriver through my hand. Now, it went across the top of my knuckles. It went in and went down four knuckles and almost pierced back out. So, pulled that thing out, and... Went to the uh, eMERGE. They looked up right away. Now it was busy in there. They looked up right away. I'd had my tetanus shot and all that. It was, you know, not a great big screwdriver. So the bleeding had stopped. It already started to scab over by the time I got there. And they said, do you want to wait around? Because. They're not even going to do stitches. It's already started. Or, to see a doctor, I thought, no, no, I've had my, you said I've had my tetanus shot. Boom, I'm out of there. Didn't need to be there. So I think a lot of people, with what your guest said, who cares if you have to wait? Now, it's easy for me to say, I don't need a hip, but maybe I will someday. But you know what? If I've got to wait 19 weeks to get a hip replacement or a knee replacement, Uh, big deal. I want to know that if I've got cancer or, you know, got to get in there for something like that, and it's a short wait time, you know what? You weigh those things out, which is more important. According to your guest, it's not that bad when it's oncology, cancer, that sort of thing. The other thing is I lived in the States before, and I've seen the other side of this. Everyone says, oh, maybe we should have some... Private, some not private, and all that. Well, you know what? Once you start down that slippery slope, it goes private, and the doctors that are working the private side, but are going to make a lot more money because they're going to a richer clientele. So they're not going to look after the indigents or the people that don't have big time uh, uh, medical programs or medical insurance. And that, really, down in the States, you see that all about. You know, look it up. Some of the poorest states in the United States, their infant mortality death rate rivals some third-world countries. And the reason? Because these people... Don't have medical coverage and they ha- have birthing at home where they can't afford to go to the hospitals. Bad things can happen and they do happen. Look that up on, uh, uh, infant mortality in the states. And that can even affect not only the infant, but the mother too if she's giving birth at home with no one there around other than the next door neighbor. And they have what's called indigent wards in hospitals. And where I lived in that town, the biggest hospital in there had 10 indigent, indigent uh beds. And how I know this, my ex mother in law was a charge nurse in the emergency there and this was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And when those indigent beds are full and they get full really quick, there's not too many empty ones, that's where you see, as according to her, the ambulances that get turned around. Do they have insurance? No. Our indigent beds are full. That ambulance is going now to another hospital to see if they can get in there. She also said that when you're in an indigent bed and you've got a life threatening illness or accident or something like that and I can't remember the exact stats, but she had them how much greater your chances are of dying because the doctors see you when they come in on shift, oh, yeah, yeah, give them pill, give them this, give them that. Then at the end of the shift, when they're walking out, they'll go through those indigent ward and say, okay, yeah, try this, try that. You're not getting very good care there. The other thing that they, he was talking about, doctors and all that, and of doctors and all that, what I'd like to know is, you know, we get so many international students coming in from all over the world. The universities love this—huge, huge, five, six, seven—I don't know, ten times the tuition.
2: Well, sometimes but, about three.
4: Okay, so three. Let's say even three then. But then, when it's a, a, a doctor, no matter which practice they're they're going to apply once they get out, how many of them go back to the country? And I do know a lot of them go back to the country where they came from. What good's that for a candidate? The university got, okay, let's say three times, three times the tuition. But what good is that when that doctor, once he's graduated, that student, once he's graduated, goes back to whatever country they came from? No wonder we've got less doctors here than what we need. Maybe we should have something that, you know, you have to be here 10 years. Uh, that wouldn't be,
2: wouldn't be out of the question. John, thanks for all the thoughts. Have a good one. Hey, take care. 519-643-2222. Got a couple minutes on this. Marilyn, they're your couple of minutes. What is oh, your experience?
1: God. Okay, dear. This is like a... i got to swallow my Cheerios. Anyways, <laughs> my son was three, and I had taken him into the washroom at Sellers. And coming out, he ran his finger down between the door and the door frame. And it was just hanging on by a thread. Now, I was very careful with them. You know, it's not that I was a neglectful mother. No, no, it no. Electricity was just an How was
2: your experience? Did everything turn out okay?
1: Yeah. Well, what happened? I'm going to give sellers a big plug. It's too bad they're not in business anymore. <laughs> but I went to the sales lady. She uh, called the head office. They uh, got me a taxi, and we were police escorted to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, my goodness, if I didn't bump into my own doctor, Dr. Alty Merritt from Lambeth, and he looked after Jimmy. And uh, thank goodness I had taken first aid. I had wrapped his finger in a paper towel and elevated the the injury. But that's uh, Zellers. Uh, I just appreciated them so much. Whoever it was that was the manager of that store for getting a taxi... All right. Getting a police escort. What I mean is, like a, a but you police had you had good at
2: care it. at the hospital. That's what we're talking about. You had good care there.
1: Oh, always, always, I always, never complain,
2: Marilyn. We've got to run along. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Okay, dear. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. Let's take a break. Coming up, we will talk with Hockey Canada about $400,000 being left in this community from the gala and golf event in the summer. And I also want to get to the search for the Ark of the Covenant. We'll do that next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. A new story has surfaced about something we have been waiting to find forever. You talk hospital wait times, they've got nothing on the search for the Ark of the Covenant. Oh yes, Bible scholars have been looking. Indiana Jones was able to find it, right? Did he ever... I'm trying to think. What did he do with it? I don't remember what he did with it. Anybody remember what he did with it? But Bible scholars believe that the Ark of the Covenant is in Africa, that it was taken out of Israel. And why do people try to find the Ark of the Covenant? It apparently has the Ten Commandments in it. So these are the two stone tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, and they are inside this Ark of the Covenant. And now they think it may be somewhere in Africa. Well, that narrows it down, doesn't it? Well, thank you very much for narrowing that right down. We'll, we'll get right over there and we'll pinpoint the location. I don't know why they believe that it is where it is, but there has been a report for a long, long time that it's been under the guard of Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion in a place called Aksum, and they've said no, and now they're looking in modern-day Ethiopia. Somebody else has said Egypt. In other words, we're no closer to having found it. In a moment, we will tell you about something that is kind of, in a way, found money for London, Ontario. Thanks to Hockey Canada, selecting London, Ontario as the place to hold their golf and gala event to honor all of the Hockey Canada teams that won championships over the 2017-18 calendar season. We have a wee bit of a legacy that's not even wee bit, it's really large. We'll talk about it next and what it means and where it goes and all that good stuff. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. If you will remember back, we had a great old night, actually a great couple of days if you were part of both of those things. In the summer... Courtesy of Hockey Canada as they had their golf and gala event. Remember? Convention Center. We had all kinds of honorees. And in the end, we have a $400,000 legacy that has been left. And you may have heard about this. It was announced late last week. But I want to delve into this a little bit bigger And joining us right now is a man who has helped us to have this legacy. Jeff McCown is the president and chief operating officer of the Hockey Canada Foundation. Jeff, thanks so much for being here.
5: Mike, thank you. How are you?
2: I am fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about what this amount of money means, because when you say, hey, here's $400,000, I don't even know what to do with it.
5: (laughs) It is pretty impressive, Mike, and uh, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, this actually happened back in the summer on, on, the, on the 18th and 19th of June, and uh, it moves around every year, Mike, uh, to a different city, and it was London's chance uh, to have it this year, and uh, by all accounts, uh, we broke all kinds of records, not surprising, in London, Ontario, and uh, the total amount net-net raised was just a little over $800,000, um, $400,000 of that. As you mentioned uh, uh, just a minute ago stays here in London an area uh, and 400 actually goes to Hockey Canada to be used for similar programs all across Canada pretty darn amazing.
2: So when you talk about the programs that will be helped by this is there a way to break it down individually or a way to know who gets the money and distributes it?
5: Sure so it's uh, that's a good question it's uh, you know we do work with Hockey Canada and, uh, you know, we're putting it into a legacy fund where we think, Mike, that, you know, it'll be used over the next number of years. We don't have a finite date on it, of course. Uh, but, you know, most likely probably in the neighborhood of sort of 30 to 50 kids, maybe more depending on, um, on how, we, how the money is allocated. But a, a significant amount each year will be eligible um, to, uh, to be funded to play the game and uh, girls, boys, uh, in all kinds of uh, hockey-type situations in the London and London area.
2: We are talking right now with Jeff McCown, who was a co-chair of the event that took place in the summer that helped to leave behind a $400,000 legacy, and that was the gala and golf event that Hockey Canada had. In terms of putting that event together, what do you think made it as successful as it was in London? Because, like you said, it broke all kinds of records.
5: Yes, uh, well, thank you for that, Mike. Well, you know, London, uh, when you say London, people think hockey. And uh, Hockey Canada could not have been more happy with the work that uh, all the teams did. Of course, some familiar names, uh, Wayne Dunn and Gordie McKenzie uh, uh, were uh, co-chairing with me. And uh, we just had great enthusiasm, Mike. We, uh, you know, probably didn't hurt that we had three good inductees, uh, Danielle Goyette, uh, uh, Mike Babcock, and Ryan Smith. And uh, for those that were there and heard them speak about what it's like to play the game in Canada and, and that, and giving back was was amazing filled 1200 people and uh and now moves on to a different city but you know of course uh, we were looking to put on a good good show for many reasons because uh, who knows maybe one day we'll get another shot at the world juniors
2: And you know what that's that's that thing how much do events like this you think help in leaving that not the legacy with dollars because that's certainly been done but the legacy of of what a community can do
5: Yes, well, uh we were on our best behavior because of that. Uh, as you know, there was a uh, there was a game uh, early in the year uh, before the World Juniors was held in in I think it was early December where the uh, the bud was filled, Hockey Canada was in attendance and looking and saying, "Wow, 9,000 plus people for an event like this." Of course, followed up in June by the uh, the gala, all the brass, all the senior brass of Hockey Canada was there. And so, uh, you know, we uh, this year it's in Vancouver, and I'm not sure the, where it goes the next year. But we're we've got our eye on it, Mike, to uh, to, try, to hopefully take a run at it with uh, Tourism London and John Winston. And uh, I mean, they uh, by all accounts, they've told us that we couldn't have done a better job, and the impression we made uh, on Hockey Canada was outstanding.
2: Well, you can't ask for more than that, Jeff. Thank you for your involvement in the event in the summer, and thanks for spending some time with us today.
5: Thank you, Mike. Take care.
2: Take care. That's Jeff McCown. He is with Great West Life, and he was a co-chair of the Golf and Gala event that has left behind a $400,000 legacy, and as Jeff said, it's not only about that. That's great, but it's not only about that. It's about what you show you can do as a community, and once again, hey, congratulations if you were a part of it because you showed what this community can do. We are going to take a break for news. Jacqueline LaBelle will have news. And then we're going to talk with Juno Award-winning jazz artist Michael Casehammer. He's got a great story. And if you think, oh, but I'm not a jazz fan, you've got to listen to his music because he'll turn you pretty quick. Also next hour, should names of people who are charged with drinking and driving be made public as an attempt to shame? Think that would work? We'll talk with someone who will give us his thoughts on that and kind of a part one of what we are doing in covering this story. Part two will happen tomorrow on the Craig Needles Show as Devin Peacock fills in for Craig Needles. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We are talking just very briefly about gift exchanges last hour on London Live. I'm up for avoiding them. You know, I I know... I'm not trying to be a Grinch. Tammy called me a Grinch. I'm not trying to be a Grinch. I'm just thinking, do you ever get anything that you really need? What if you made a gift exchange that was coupon only or gift card only? Oh, but that's not putting any thought into it. Yeah, but it's what I would use. You know, I'm at a point in my life where I want to stop accumulating stuff and I don't use bath beads. I don't, It's not that I don't bathe. I shower. I don't bathe. I'm not up for the bath beads. And I don't know what else you could get. Little tiny shaving creams, something like that. Uh, Ron did say the last couple of years, because money has been tight, we've only bought for the kids. And he says, I've made a couple of charity donations. What if we did that? What if you had a gift exchange where you made a $25 donation to a charity? Is that as fun? It should be. It should actually be more fun than going out and trying to spend $25 on little tiny stuff. But somehow that wouldn't cut it, I'm sure. 519-643-2222. James, what are your thoughts on gift exchanges?
6: Yeah, so uh, for many years i had been working on my family about let's stop buying each other consumer goods for Christmas because it's just ridiculous. We, We spend about $150 on each other each, and it's just, you know you've almost forced yourself to have to get to get to fi- find something for someone else to pick for you. And, and then also they did a, a, a stocking exchange, the adults did. And then we grew up as as the, the cousins and, and the brothers and sisters grew up and decided, and thought about, you know, we should do a, a stocking exchange too. And I said, no, let's stop it right here. Let's do every year, we go out to the keg or some fancy restaurant, you know, all 13 of us, and we, we just have a meal. And it's a memory that we can always cherish, and we don't have to worry about it. And that's actually now gone into our, our gifts. We almost don't buy each other gifts anymore for birthdays. We just go out to a nice meal on a birthday and, and celebrate that birthday. And, and I think that's the way it should be because, you know, what, what do I need a toaster for? You're, you're right. What do you need bath beads for?
2: That is a fantastic idea, because you know what you're doing? You're actually giving the gift of quality time, and we don't do that enough.
6: Exactly, exactly. And that's the kind of thing I want to remember. I want to remember when I'm old, year after year, we went to these, these meals and we had a fun time and I got to enjoy the company of my, my family members. And that's something I'll cherish. I'll never remember getting a Google Home in 20 years.
2: <laughs> and by then, there'll be so many other Google Homes that have been brought about since then. Yeah, your, your old one will be obsolete. I am totally, James, I love that idea. Thanks for the call. Thanks. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Otherwise, what happens at the end? Somebody has to come into your house and pick up all your stuff. That's what it gets down to. I don't know. Bit by bit, I'm becoming a real minimalist. Is that okay? Do you need any books? I have a lot of books. A lot of them about hockey. Do you need any? Because it's time. And I don't want any other little tiny trinkety things. That's not a gift. It really isn't. It's a thing. And you go, oh, hey, and you have to fake that. Oh, thank you very much. That's great. This is beautiful. That's what I was always hoping I would get, whatever this is. Thank you. And thanks for the bath beads attached to it. But that's the gift. You know, if, if you can give a gift of something else, you know, somebody who is able to do something outside of, you know, the, the buying of the material thing, you do something nice for somebody or, hey. The gift of music, that is a gift. That is an absolute gift. So we'll talk more about gift exchanges a little later on. But if you're having one, can you spell out the rules? Rob still gave us the idea that you can go to drawnames.com. And I did check it out. And there's a wish list and some stuff. So it does help if you want to do it. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not trying to be a Grinch. But at the same time, we're not getting anywhere with this. Gift exchanges, they don't provide what you need. All right. Gift of music, that is still a thing. That will always be the thing. And our next guest certainly has it and continues to give all of us the gift of music. Please welcome, because the Junos are coming to London, Juno award-winning jazz artist Michael Casehammer to London Live. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you here. How are things?
7: I'm doing great. That was a great intro. Do you
2: you take part in gift exchanges by any any chance?
7: Um, No, I don't accept, like you say, the gift of music.
2: Well, I love that you give us the gift of music. We have to talk a little bit about what you have been up to because you have such a remarkable story. Michael is a guy who was born in Germany and moved to Canada. Do you ever think about what would happen because you were classically trained in Germany? What if you stayed in Germany? (laughs)
7: <laughs> I'd like to not think about that, because <laughs> I love my life now. But um, I I don't know if I would have pursued music as a career, to be honest with you. I think moving to Canada and to Victoria at the time, in particular, seeing musicians play in uh, bars and, and clubs is what made me become a professional musician.
2: So that so exposed that you to the fact that that existed?
7: <laughs> Absolutely. I grew up in a little town in the Black Forest in Germany, and I knew jazz and blues and R&B music from my dad's records. But having a career in music was, no one thought about that. And then I came, with 18 years old, I came here and, and, uh, to Victoria and, and uh, I saw all these guys making a living with it. And to me, as an 18-year-old, it looked like the most romantic life ever.
2: Well, you have taken it and you have turned it into all kinds of great success. You've been to two Olympic Games, a Paralympic Mm -hmm. Games to perform. That probably didn't enter into your mind that that could have been a possibility.
7: No, absolutely not. And, and, you know, the beautiful thing about um, pursuing a musical career without having um, any kind of uh, expectations is that things will come your way if you just do your thing, and people will gravitate towards it. And so for me, up to this up to this day really it's it's great just to see what's next and i will follow it
2: michael casehammer is going to be at aeolian hall here in london on december 13th by the way doors open at seven o'clock and you can head to the aeolian hall website and you can get yourself tickets because you have to see the experience because your music really is that it's not somebody just sitting back and playing an instrument you've got so much going on yeah. all the time how have you developed that
7: I think just by really loving what I do. I, usually, I'm usually not that hyper when you, when you talk to me or hang out with me during the day, and then somehow when I get at the piano, I just everything just starts, and I love jumping around the stage, and I love playing uh, high energy, and I love being a part of the instrument, which is, you know, if you play a sax or, or, or any kind of instrument that's close to your body, it's different, but I'm playing a piece of furniture, you know, and so you, you really want to get connected with the instrument. And for me, it's all about the energy, and that is usually what the audience picks up on.
2: Michael Casehammer joining us, now an eight-time Juno nominee. Congratulations on the latest nomination. Hopefully we see a, another win here in London.
7: Well, I would love to, uh, you know, London, is. Uh, I've had a long history of playing in London over the years, and I think it's great that the Junos are coming there.
2: Well, Michael, let's go back in time because you mentioned the piano being a piece of furniture and sometimes kids are taken to piano lessons and they'll say, I I don't want to go, I don't want to do that. Were you one of those kids or did it just kind of find you and you find it at the same time?
7: Well, there was a little bit of both because um, I've loved the piano as far back as I can remember because I saw my dad play piano at home and he played jazz and, and, and ragtime and, and blues and boogie-woogie. And so I loved that, the rhythm of that music. And my parents saw that I loved that music and I loved the piano. And so they put me into um, piano lessons at the conservatory. And uh, my first piano teacher was great. She, she really made me love the piano. And I think that's what makes a good teacher, especially for kids, is creating this relationship with the instrument. And then I had another piano teacher who just made me play things I didn't want to play. And so I had a mix of both. I always played piano, but I hated going to the lessons.
2: (laughs) Now, when did singing come into the picture?
7: That started pretty early with um, playing along to records like a lot of uh, Big Joe Turner or, um, uh, I don't know, just just a lot of early blues records, uh, Joe Williams. And I would learn all the piano parts. And if there was vocals on it, I would just sing along. But I didn't do it um, in my shows or on record, really, until I started to write. And at that point, it actually made more sense to me, because all of a sudden I had something to say.
2: And how old would you have been then?
7: Oh, that was at the very beginning of my career when I started recording. I was 18, and I recorded a lot of instrumental music, so this would have probably been in my early 20s, four or five years after I started recording.
2: Michael, you mentioned your dad's record collection and the fact yeah. that it had a lot of New Orleans jazz in it. When was the first time you actually got to go to New Orleans and see this stuff happening live?
7: I went down in the 96 uh, for the first time, and for me um, that was, it was a groundbreaking trip, because I only heard about certain streets and places um, in Louis Armstrong songs or Buddy Bolden songs. And all of a sudden I was there and I I would see this stuff and I realized, okay, if I really want to learn this music, I have to be in the place where it was created and where people still play it. It's great to watch a documentary or read a book or have a teacher, but you're not going to get it the same way unless you're right there. And so I started spending a lot of time in New Orleans and now it's just become kind of my second nature way of playing the piano.
2: Isn't that wild? We're talking with Michael Casehammer. Michael is... Can we call you Canadian? Can we, We've we adopted you, haven't we?
7: Oh, yeah. I've spent more time here than in, than I have in, in Germany, and I am a Canadian citizen.
2: Well, I love that. Okay, so Canadian Michael Casehammer, who is a nominee for Vocal Jazz Album of the Year at this year's Juno Awards. Are you going to be able to make it in your schedule to the Junos by any chance?
7: Yeah, I love going, and... and uh, it's, you know, it's always, um, I mean, besides the, the actual event, the, the telecast, it's, there's so much more happening around it, and that's usually what I love the most, is that all the stuff that happens in the clubs, all the stuff that happens at the gala, and you meet a lot of friends. You know, the Canadian music scene isn't that big, so you run into the same people a lot of times at the Junos, and it's, you know, it's kind of like a, everyone comes together and talks about what happened over the year.
2: Well, I want to talk about the album that you've put out, something different in just a moment, but maybe you can help us out, because you've mentioned a few terms, and I think more and more people need to discover the kind of music you play, need to discover jazz all over again. Yeah. You mentioned boogie-woogie. How would we describe what boogie-woogie is?
7: Well, on the piano, it's, um, it's basically the, what rock and roll became through Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and Elvis. Um, if you think of rock and roll piano, and you strip away the band and the, and the drums and everything, that is boogie-woogie piano. And that was the style that people were dancing to before, in the 50s, all the rock and roll guys started turning it into rock and roll songs.
2: And yet that's different from ragtime, right? right.
7: right? Yes, the ragtime is even earlier than that, and it's, very, it's almost like a two-step. And it's not quite as grooving. But um, you jump with your left hand when you play ragtime. You go from the bass note to a chord, and and you're basically imitating a bass player. And that's what uh, piano players used to do as entertainment back in the 20s and 30s, you know.
2: You, with Something Different, have done something different. A new album that you were certainly involved in performing on, but at the same time, tell us about producing this a little bit more than maybe some of your other albums.
7: Well, for me, a new album always has to have some kind of um, personal interest that I'm into at the moment. You know, of course, I love writing and I love recording and performing, But as a person, just as a human being, you grow and there's certain things you're interested in. And for me, it was um, getting into production a little more. And not just producing my own band and my own music, but producing other singers and other artists. And um, we recorded this album in New Orleans. And then while we started recording it, I had the idea of inviting artists that I heard um, on these songs that aren't me And that's basically what a producer does Putting the best musicians to surf the song Into the studio and make the best the song can be
2: Well here, let's give you an example Right now of that Because one of the artists that you did invite Was Cyril Neville on a song called She's Gone, here it is mm-hmm. love, Being her man Meant everything to me That is music that just makes you feel good. What's it like to be around that as much as you are?
7: It feels good. <laughs> it's really, uh, you know, it's, um, it makes my day go by, and, it's, and it's, it's part of my day from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, and I dream about it sometimes, too.
2: So will you be somebody who wakes up in the middle of the night and, and has an idea?
7: Oh, yeah, it definitely has happened. There, there, some of them are good. Some of minds are good. But um, especially if you spent the day... Uh, thinking about something or something's on your mind, it'll come out in your dream.
2: Now, do you have to write it down so you'll remember it, or do you have the kind of mind that can, oh, I got that? I,
7: uh, I have a little, sometimes I write things down, but usually the next morning I'll be fine, I'll remember it. And if I don't, I'm, I'm kind of the person who goes, well, it's not meant to be.
2: Because <laughs> writing down music, I mean, if you wake up with lyrics in your mind, that's one thing, writing down music has to be a totally different thing.
7: It, if you're used to it, it's basically like writing words. It's it's th- that simple. And sometimes you can you can just kind of write the notes down with the letters as well if you don't have staff paper or something. But there's always a way. Or I mean, uh, you know, having having a, an iPhone or any kind of phone, you just kind of record it and then it's right there too.
2: Was there anybody, Michael, that you reached out to on the album something, something different, different that you wanted to collaborate with you? You thought, thought, oh, I I, I got I this got shot. I, hope they, I hope they say yes. Say yes.
7: Uh, I, well, everyone I reached out to said yes, and and I was very conscious in um, uh, selecting people who, first of all, I admired as musicians, but also who are really friends or who are people I thought would get along with in the studio. And uh, and everyone luckily said yes. But then after I finished the recording. I had another person in mind, and uh, maybe maybe sometime for the future that would be great to do, but I really would love to record a song with Brian Johnson from ACDC.
2: Really? Really.
7: Yeah, it's 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 uh, you know it's been my favorite band since I was a kid and uh and I think um there's so much blues in his singing that uh I I definitely think there could be something done there.
2: See, I love what we're able to learn about musicians because we think that you are, you know, you were hooked on New Orleans jazz right from the beginning and and classically trained and you listen to your albums and and there is so much happening but so much richness in the music and then to hear no no, I'm a huge ACDC fan. <laughs>
7: Well, good music's good music. That's true. You know, I love Beethoven, too, but to me, there's a lot of similarities in all of it. And as long as it's good, and it, and it gets you, like, it really gets to your core, to your soul, then that's all that matters.
2: Any favorite ACDC songs? Um, honestly,
7: I, I'm, I have a lot of favorites because I used to be part of the fan club when I was a kid and everything, but because of the production and because of the album, I'm a huge fan of Touch Too Much.
2: Really? Okay. that's I love
7: that production on that song.
2: Well, we wish you luck in collaborating one day with Brian Johnston, and we certainly (laughs) wish you all the best as you are up again for nominee for for Vocal Jazz Album of the Year at the Junos. Eight-time Juno nominee, two-time winner, and you'll also be at the Aeolian Hall on December 13th. Doors open at 7 o'clock. Michael, it's been great spending some time with you. Thanks so much for this.
7: It was a pleasure to talk to you. Very enjoyable. Take Take care. Thank you. You too.
2: It's Michael K. Hammer. See, I'll, isn't that wild that you you think people get so caught up in everything that they, they are or you see them in one way? I mean, we've got somebody who is one of the most successful jazz musicians, not only in this country, but in the world. You look at the number of albums that he has sold. You look at the success that he has. He's performed. We didn't really get into it, but... He's performed at two Olympic Games. I mean, they bring him in and say, hey, work your magic. He's performed at the Paralympics. And an eight-time Juno nominee, two-time winner, and he is up for vocal jazz album of the year. But you think, his life's got to be all jazz. No, nope, huge ACDC fan. I love that part of things. All right, let's take a break. Up next, we'll let you know what's still to come on the show. We are going to be talking about something that York Regional Police have decided to do, and this will be part one of covering this story. You're going to hear more on the Craig Needle Show tomorrow with Devin Peacock. So we'll outline some of what that is and maybe have time to get your thoughts on whether this is right or whether whether this is something that is just the latest to try to get people to stop drinking and driving and we've had we've had an attempt to do that for how many years it's like getting people to quit smoking they just do it and it's tragic it's unfortunate drunk driving can be far more tragic than obviously smoking but you've got to find a way to get through to people i don't know what that is Otherwise, with all of the advertising that has gone on, with all the promotion of safety and and what this does, the lives it touches, we shouldn't have anybody drinking and driving now. It just shouldn't happen. But it still does. So here is a latest attempt. We'll tell you what that is in just a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Okay, the idea that York Regional Police has is, and you can go to 980cfpl.ca, you got to scroll back a little bit or just Google it through Global News. The idea is to shame drunk drivers. And instead of waiting until they're convicted, publish their names right away. This person's been charged with drunk driving right there. And that's what they've started to do. So is that good? Bad? I don't know. Is that going to help? I don't know. But it's something that we will get some insight on in about 10 minutes from now. So be ready for that. Uh, I've been called a Grinch a couple more times because of the gift exchange. I, I'm not trying to be a Grinch. I'm really not. But there's got to be a, a better way. I love what James and his family do. They get together. They have dinners. That's that's time. Time is so much more valuable than we credit it for being. Let's take a quick break. We've got news with Jacqueline LaBelle. Get you caught up on everything going on. And then we will look into the particulars of what York Regional Police are trying to do to stop people from drinking and driving. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.
0: Good afternoon. It's 2 o'clock. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Mostly sunny skies. Zero degrees. Feels like minus 5 with the wind chill. Ontario's community safety minister says the qualification requirements for the province's top policing job were changed partway through the hiring process to broaden the pool of applicants for the post. Uh, Sylvia Jones says a hiring firm made that decision before the announcement of Ronald Taverner as the next commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police and she says he's well qualified for the job. Critics of his appointment have noted the superintendent with the Toronto Police Force is a personal friend of Premier Doug Ford. NDP leader Andrew Horvath says it's shocking that the hiring process was changed and called for an independent investigation into Taverner's appointment. A man accused of killing 10 people in a van attack in North Toronto set to stand trial in February 2020. The date was set at a brief hearing for Alec Manassian, who faces 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder in connection with the incident April 23rd. Police alleged a 26-year-old drove a rental van down a busy sidewalk along Yonge Street, mowing down pedestrians along the way last month the deputy attorney general granted a prosecution request to skip the preliminary hearing in the case and head straight to trial it was a busy morning for protesters out at london's canada post-processing facility the group londoners for door-to-door was out in full force protesting the federal government's decision to levy back to work legislation last week forcing postal workers back to work after five weeks of rotating strikes Group spokesperson Wendy Goldsmith tells 980 CFPL Canada Post workers have been denied their right to negotiate a fair contract.
1: We're upset that the Liberal government has uh, legislated workers back to work without a contract and um, we're standing up for workers everywhere.
0: Goldsmith says they got a warm reception from workers while they were on the line this morning. She says they're looking at their options for possible future demonstrations. Police in Elgin County say a body was found inside a vehicle in the water in Port Bruce. Emergency services were called to Catfish Creek just after 8 this morning. Constable Adam Crudson tells 980 CFPL members of the Malahide Fire Service were also on scene and found the body of a man inside the vehicle. What I can say
3: right now is that there's no foul play suspected uh, in the death of this individual. individual. The, uh, the coroner's office is engaged as well. And if anything comes out of that, I guess, portion of the investigation, then it will certainly change. But uh, at this time, uh, it's safe to say that there's uh, no foul play suspected.
0: The man's been identified as 66-year-old Gary Scrivens of Port Bruce. Alberta and Saskatchewan want the agenda for this week's first minister's meeting revised to include the crisis facing the oil industry. Premiers Rachel Notley and Scott Moe have written an open letter to Justin Trudeau saying a crisis of this magnitude must be reflected in any discussion on economic competitiveness. They say the agenda for the meeting in Montreal needs to better reflect the need for a substantive discussion on issues of critical importance to the Canadian economy. Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Bellegarde has appointed message for federal politicians. Listen to First Nations priorities or else. At a special chief's meeting in Ottawa, Belgard reminded the federal parties that First Nations voters were responsible for flipping nearly two dozen ridings in the 2015 federal election.
7: You people running in federal elections, you better listen to Indian issues, First Nations issues now if you want to get elected. That's the message. And we flipped 22 ridings so we can't forget the priorities of First Nations people.
0: Belgard says he wants to see a few key pieces of legislation passed before the House rises in June, including the long-awaited Indigenous Languages Act. He also spoke about climate change and asked the chiefs and delegates to support a carbon tax as one way to head it off. You're listening to 980 CFPL.
2: I've already said this once, but I have to say it again. We have the best listeners. Thank you. James, when we were talking about the Ark of the Covenant, actually went and did the research on this and has been able to send it along. So, hey... This was some quick research. Here's what I was wondering. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, they went after the Ark of the Covenant. And to go back to the story, this is from about an hour ago on London Live. We were talking about biblical scholars who have been trying to figure out where is the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the Ark of the Covenant has the two stone tablets in it, apparently, that were brought down from the mount by Moses. And they contain the Ten Commandments. And the search has always been on to find this. And they made Raiders of the Lost Ark about it. And I thought, well, they found it in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But then what happened? Well, James has sent along a detailed synopsis of the end of the movie. He says, and if you haven't watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, I am going to spoil it right now. So if you don't want Raiders of the Lost Ark spoiled, if you haven't seen it by now, we've given you time. Here it comes. Spoiler alert. After it's opened and the angel of death kills anyone, it cuts to the final scenes where everyone is sitting at a table and a bureaucrat says the Ark is in safe hands being worked on by top officials. Indiana Jones, mad about this because he knows the dangers. And then the very last scene is the Ark being put in a shipping crate, a man pushing it through a giant warehouse of similar crates. The credits roll, and as James says, this suggests it's again lost in a very large warehouse. So the biblical scholars that have looked at this have pinpointed it and have said it's somewhere in Africa. Okay, well then we should hear reports of it being found any day now. Somewhere in Africa. Fantastic. Some believe that it's somewhere in Ethiopia. Okay, do you know how big Ethiopia is? And we haven't found it yet, so I'm not sure if that's happening at all. Uh, Kathy says, no jeans in a gift exchange. Uh, Rose says, as much as I agree with you about the gift thing, uh, you're sounding a little cranky there, Mike. I'm not trying to be cranky. I'm just saying there's better ways. And I'm wondering if you have any of those ways, if, if you at your workplace have done something and it's been shrouded in secrecy, much like the location of the Ark of the Covenant. And you've been doing this thing for years and it's worked out great. Hey, we gave up on gift exchanges years ago. Here's what we do now. Let us know what that is. We can spread the word. It's okay to copy stuff like that. It's good. It's healthy. We have coming up a story about the York Regional Police Service. They have looked at impaired driving charges, and like all of us, they scratch their heads. They really do. And as one officer said, innocent lives are put at risk every day by what is an irresponsible and criminal behavior, have been for years. How long have we been told, don't drink and drive? And we've seen the extremes of very graphic videos shown We have seen pleas. We have heard stories of people whose family members' lives have either been affected or completely taken away because of somebody driving impaired, making that choice. Because ultimately you do. Oh, well, they're just impaired. Okay, well, that's not good enough. So what York Regional Police have begun to do is release the names of drivers who have been charged See, these are not drivers who have been convicted. This is every name of someone who is charged with impaired driving. Now, doesn't that sound, as much as we want impaired driving to stop, doesn't that sound irresponsible? Because sometimes there are extenuating circumstances. And if you are charged with impaired driving, sometimes you are not convicted of impaired driving because of whatever the circumstance happens to be so this is what they're doing and they're doing it to bring about shame absolutely that's what it's there effective immediately police and this is according to a global news story you can read at globalnews.ca or 980cfpl.ca effective immediately police will name all of the drivers charged with impaired related offenses in order to, quote, further make impaired driving socially unacceptable. I want to get the thoughts of somebody who delves into criminal behavior, who delves into how it is portrayed, both in social media and in other forms. And I want to find out what he thinks about this. And we'll do that next. Dr. Derek Silva is going to join us. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It has become an unexpectedly sunny day throughout parts of southwestern Ontario. Hopefully you're able to enjoy at least a little bit of it. I don't know how long it's going to last. Here's something that would not be sunny for someone... ...who had it happen to them. But it's happening through York Regional Police. They have decided to release the names of drivers charged with impaired driving. Not convicted, but charged. Is that something that will help? As one of their officers has pointed out, innocent lives are put at risk every day. And this is something that they hope will further make impaired driving socially unacceptable. Well, let's get some expert analysis on this. Joining us right now is Dr. Derek Silver, an assistant professor of criminology at King's University College. Dr. Silva, when you first saw this story, did you think it was real or, or surprised by it?
8: Uh, I did indeed think it was real, but um, not entirely surprised or shocked by it, no.
2: Okay, how come?
8: Well, it it seems uh, to be a way in which uh, many police uh, agencies are, are moving. They're they're moving towards um, creating context of uh, social unacceptability around these types of things, which seems to be the explicit intent of doing this sort of weekly listing, um, and I would call sort of shaming of of people charged with certain criminal or charged with with certain criminal, or, um, with, with, with certain criminal activities.
2: What kind of effect do you think this could have?
8: Um, well, I think that it a—it's um, an attempt to, to publicly sort of um, um, bring some sort of embarrassment to people who might be um, charged in these uh, in these situations. Um, whether or not it has a positive effect of actually preventing these um, things um, in these uh, these challenging situations is—it's uh, a, a sort of leap to say that it would for sure do that. But police forces tend to think that it does.
2: So is this kind of looking around and saying, hey, how does our world work now? A lot of people are are more visible personally than they've ever been before, and, and so this maybe affects them in that way. Could there be something to that?
8: I think so, and I think that um, with social networking and social media becoming such a pervasive thing in society, it's a way in which police agencies, can, can hold just generally people uh, accountable. Um, we call this a, a general deterrence um, in, uh, in
2: criminology. So general deterrence. Give us the scope of what that would cover.
8: Uh, it's, it simply means it's a way in which we can deter negative behavior, in this case drunk driving, um, through, in this exercise, a public shaming. Other ways that that's done is through sort of prison, um, through punishment, and through um, court hearings that are seen typically as a, a general deterrence.
2: We're talking with Dr. Derek Silva, Assistant Professor of Criminology at King's University College, and we're looking at something that York Regional Police have started to do, releasing the names of drivers who are not convicted of impaired driving, but who are charged with impaired driving and if you look back over this weekend 16 drivers in the york region were charged with 27 impaired related driving offenses and that's kind of where that goes we're going to have a, another part of this conversation tomorrow on the craig needle show with devin peacock because he'll be able to talk with a mad spokesperson but right now we're kind of laying this out courtesy of dr Derek silva dr silva when we look at this from a punishment standpoint, like you say, in criminology, how often do you look at, at punishments and, and how they play out and how effective they are?
8: Um, that's an entire field or subfield of criminology focusing on how effective punishment is and how effective things like this form of general deterrence um, might be.
2: Now, in terms of, of actually recommending changes, we've had prisons and jails for a long, long time. Uh, I think you can probably go back to whatever that thing was called with the wood and you stuck your arms and your head in it and, and that held you for a little while. I mean, that's that's the same kind of thing. You detain somebody for a period of time. But in looking at... at Sometimes, you know, wearing a sandwich board that says what you've done or having yourself publicly shamed, does it depend on the person or can this be an uh, effective deterrent to anyone?
8: Um, I think it depends on the person, certainly. It also depends on the audience. The, The audience that might be viewing these tweets, it might not be the same audience that is engaging in this problematic behavior. So then you want to question whether or not you're sending messages to people who, would never get behind the vo- uh, behind the wheel of a car um, uh, uh, under uh, the influence of any um, substance.
2: That's a great point. That's a very good point. How do you reach them? Because if you're if you're preaching to the choir, it's uh, it's not all that effective. You want to be able to find the people who are actually doing this to preach to them. Now, one last thing, and that is in the justice system. Could this have? you know, could this not be looked at from a legal perspective? And and could someone not challenge this saying, hey, wait, 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 I haven't been convicted of anything. And you've just put me out there as having been charged. Is there anything to that? Do you think?
8: I think that there could be and I want to be cautious about this because um, just putting information out there might not um, be any indication of conviction. But in this case, in particular, um, because it's uh, the evidentiary standards for drunk driving are relatively set, and we don't typically use things like breathalyzers that would be the basis for these charges, I imagine. We don't typically use those in the court of law to determine whether or not somebody was actually driving impaired. We use a thing like a breathalyzer or a roadside test as evidence to get the evidence that somebody was impaired through blood tests and through a variety of other um, mechanisms, so it's really difficult to to put a name out there for someone who is just charged without going through that judicial process, um, which is is an area sort of gray area in in terms of the law.
2: Okay. Well, Doctor Silva, thank you so much for spelling out a number of angles of this story. Anything else jumping out at you, or are you just interested to see how this carries out?
8: I am certainly interested to in see how this carry carries out, and particularly. Um, reading the tweets um, that make it uh, explicit that this was uh, an attempt to make drunk driving socially unacceptable, I think that's a this is a really interesting case um, to follow up on.
2: Dr. Silva, thanks so much for your time today. No, thank you. That is Dr. Derek Silva from King's University of College uh, or King's University College, an assistant professor of criminology. There are some changes being made to the way that. Drivers who are found driving impaired are being dealt with, not just by York Regional Police, but there is an announcement today that I want to make sure we address before we close out. The info might be something that you need to know. It's next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. On the back of what we were talking about with Dr. Silva that York Regional Police have started to release names of drivers who are charged with drunk driving. One thing that you do need to know, and the federal government is trying to get this out right now, they have talked about it today, as a matter of fact, it is the changes that are part of Bill C-46. And they go into effect on December 18th. So what are we at now? We're at the 4th. So we're two weeks away, right? Yeah, we're two weeks away from this. And those changes make it okay for police officers to conduct mandatory roadside alcohol breath tests. And this is right from the legislation on drivers without requiring that they be suspicious of the driver having had anything to drink. So they can just randomly say, hey, here comes a breath test. And if they do find something, then, of course, there will be an additional test administered at a police station. But this is something that is coming into effect. And the idea is to try to get people from or or try to, I guess, condition people to say, hey, I was over the legal limit, but that was two hours ago. This is part of this. And that was two hours ago. and, And well, now now I'm okay to drive. That, no, you you still actually might not be. And just waiting and saying, well, I haven't really had much to drink in two hours. You know what we need stories of? Because this does happen. We need stories that outline people who were drinking the night before. And they get up in the morning and go, well, I've been asleep for four hours. Time to go home. And yet you are still impaired. Sometimes very much so. And those people do get pulled over. And and this is kind of one of those things where you say, Yeah, well, yeah, I was I was drinking heavily, but it's been two hours, so I must be fine. That's not the way it works at all. So this is part of Bill C-46, and it will give police officers more jurisdiction to administer breath tests, really to anybody. You don't have to have that initial suspicion. So... That comes into effect December 18th, which, by my math, is in two weeks from today. Uh, very quickly before we close out, email from Andy. You can email anytime, Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Andy says, just want to point out that people's names get published when they've been charged with a crime before conviction all the time. Uh, yeah, no, you're exactly right, but it's, it's one of those tricky things that when you are writing— And when you're writing news, you'll write a story. And then at the end of it, you will say, 45-year-old, this guy has been charged with this crime. So it's not convicting them. It's letting somebody know that they've been charged. And I guess in a way, this is similar. It just hasn't happened in this way before. You had to be somebody of notoriety, really, to have your name published or put out in some kind of public way. So maybe that's the difference. But, Andy, very good point. We are out of time on London Live. It's brought to you, as always, by our friends at Winmar, your restoration specialist. If you have any renovations to do, you can call them, too. Get them done before winter hits. Thanks to Matt McInnes for all of his help today. Jacqueline LaBelle and Matthew Trevithick are next with news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.